Hello, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine, the one and only podcast with the power to travel back in time and talk about the figures and stories of the Bible from a historical context from uh, way back in first century AD. So I am Dave Roos. I'm a journalist, and I am here with my co-host, Helen Bond. Helen is a professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh, and well, first of all, hello, Helen. Hi. Hello, Dave. Good to see you again. Great to see you. Um, We are excited because we are trying something new and something that we will hopefully do again in the future, which is to have a guest, an actual guest with us. So we are very excited to have Joan Taylor, professor of Christian origins and Second Temple Judaism at King's College London with us, and she is all the way in New Zealand. Hello, Joan. Hello, both of you. Hi. <laughs> now, Helen, this is this is this is not really fair because Helen and Joan know each other very well. They are they are old friends and collaborators. Um, they work together. Partners in crime. Absolutely. We're partners in crime. We've, we've <laughs> partners in crime. Let's gone not around, talk. Uh, this Israel is not the together. place to admit your crimes. <laughs> um, but they wrote a book together. They did a TV series together about uh, Jesus's female disciples and. Today, we're going to talk about John the Baptist. Helen will tell you, I always ask this question because, um, I don't know, it's a simple question, but we talked about a lot of, you know, Marys in the New Testament. There seemed to be a handful of Johns. What, where is this name John come from? What was the actual name that people would have called John the Baptist? What do we know? Well, um, John is a Jewish name, a very uh, popular Jewish name in the first century, Yohanan. Um, and uh, there were various important people, priests like John Hyrcanus with the name Yohanan. Um, so it was okay. just a, like Jesus, Yeshua, it was a, a popular name for boys in the first century. So there's nothing particularly special about the name John, and that's why we have multiple Johns in the New Testament. Okay, so it was Johanan, and then and then it was it the what did they call him in Greek? Uh, Johannes. Johannes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then we got John out of that. Okay, thank you. Um, So if we're talking about names, I'm I'm still stuck on names. So John the Baptist. Can you? What is the origin? of this word baptize like where what, what is what does baptize mean where where did it come from is it latin or is it greek uh, what where is that yeah baptize is a, a greek word that was used quite widely um before john came along um but it was used in the translation of the septuagint which is the greek version of the hebrew bible um the septuagint uh was something that came together in Alexandria and was used by Greek-speaking Jews in the diaspora. So Jews in the diaspora all around the Mediterranean world were um, reading scripture in Greek, and they hit the word baptize when they saw um, the, the when they read about Naaman's self-immersions um, in Second Kings, um, the, the, the word here uh, translating a, a Greek word, um, a, a translating a Hebrew word um, for immerse um, was yeah. baptize. So baptize actually just simply means um, baptism is just immersion in terms of immersion, Jewish yeah. understanding um, of the time of, of John the Baptist and, and Jesus. 
Well, so, I mean, you touched on this, and this is, is what I wanted to get into first, the origins of, of this idea of baptism. So you, you said there was some Jewish relationship with some cleansing or purity rituals involving water. So yeah, how far back, or not even how far back, but can we trace how it went from its Jewish context to this, you know, early Christian context, I guess it's even kind of pre-Jesus context, but the John the Baptist context mm. of what was he doing with baptism and did he kind of invent a new way of doing it? Um, what, what, do we, what do we think? Right. I mean, he was called the, the Baptist. Uh, in all of our sources, he's called the Baptist because he was doing this thing. He was immersing people. And, and it is kind of curious because usually, um, as with Naaman, um, you are so, uh, when you come to immersion in Judaism, it's about self-immersion. No one does it to you. Um, but if you, uh, uh, what you do, if you have an active verb, you can, um, you can immerse vessels that have become impure. You can immerse children. You can immerse other entities. But if you're doing it to yourself, it is this, uh, the self-immersion practice. Um, in pure water, in, in water that is uh, appropriate for it. Um, so why is John called the Baptist as an act, you know, the active baptizer? And it, it could be because he is really calling people to this practice. You know, you must be baptized. Um, it's something that mm. has, has become his, um, his, his, his great sounding um, theme that he is going to ask people to, to be baptized and baptize themselves effectively. Um, to what extent he actually physically dunked people underwater, um, he might have done. He might have done something that, and, and, that brought them to the water and sort of pushed them underwater. But then it, in order for the baptism or immersion to be truly effective, he would have then had to have let go at some point. Um, so he could have done something that was quite strange <laughs> in terms of his, his practice of, of immersion, but, um, but still that, that model of, of Jewish immersion would have been the, the primary paradigm for anyone to understand what he was doing. Yeah, well, so maybe just, yeah, back up and just talk to me a little bit more about how in like some Second Temple Judaism, sort of regular Jewish folks, or maybe it wasn't regular Jewish folks, maybe it was more for like the priestly class or something. How were they using water as, as this purifying thing? Right. Well, it's it's, it's quite uh, complicated in a way because the, the, the primary need for um, immersion is to become ritually pure when you go to the temple uh, grounds. Um, when you enter the temple, the idea is that you have to have this state of ritual purity because the temple itself is a place of the utmost purity. Purity and holiness uh, conceptually go very close together in terms of the temple concept. That there's this, this idea of of purity, um, but purity comes and goes in in someone's life. Um, it's not like oh, you're you're made pure and then that's it. You know, once and for all, you know, you're pure. You don't have to ever go into a, a mikvah ag again. Um, all sorts of things can render you impure, and and sometimes it's not water that cleanses you. It's 
you know, the ashes of the red heifer, you know, that all sorts of things can um, be required in order to uh, take you from a state of ritual impurity to a, a state of purity. So the question is then if um, John the Baptist's immersion would have been understood in terms of the, the concepts of ritual purity that were everywhere, and people knew this this practice um, uh, was referred to as as immersion and the, the Septuagint. Um, what what was he doing? <laughs> you know, what? How could it be something about ritual purity when we know that ritual purity doesn't actually give you a kind of once and for all status shift? Because in the case of a woman, we'd we'd have to go and and wash after our periods anyway. Um, and men, uh, all, all sorts of things can happen <laughs> that, that mean that you have, <laughs> without the technical details, um, that re require you to have um, some sort of change in terms of uh, purification. Can I ask the and the striking things here to me seem to be the fact that it's one off and and the fact that it's for the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. I mean that must have seemed very strange to people because that's not how you get rid of sin, is it? I no. mean to get rid of sin, presumably you go to the temple. So, you know, that must have sounded very strange. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. Um and so this is the sort of moving on to the next bit of the <laughs> of the whole package. There's baptism, there's the, the bit that, that seems to be about ritual purity, but then there's, it was a baptism of repentance, um, towards or for the, uh, forgiveness of sins. So this, um, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, we kind of have to take each component bit of it and try and understand the relationship between the different parts. So as, as Helen says, um, it wasn't a case of you going into a mikvah. Um, a mikvah is a ritual immersion pool. Um, or a, a spring or a river or other body of water that was particularly uh, pure um, and going down into it and coming up pure and feeling all my sins have been forgiven. <laughs> you know, that, that is not what, what happened in terms of ritual immersion. Um, if you if you wanted atonement, if you wanted that sense that God has forgiven you of your sins, there were various different ways that people did it. And, um, and in fact, that how, how one was atoned for sin seems to have been, um, something that different Jewish groups, different, um, Jewish individuals were, were talking about at the time. So in terms of what had happened in, um, in ancient times, in ancient Israel, there was more of a collective sense that, um, and and the and the temple was very strongly connected with that collectivity of Israel as a whole as a whole nation so um that the rituals that Israel did collectively at in the temple were supposed to somehow make things right um in terms of Israel and God and that involved the sacrificial system um where animals could be sacrificed um, that this is very, very ancient stuff. Many ancient, um, religions had 
a similar idea, the idea that you could go and, and offer up um, a, a lamb and 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 the god in question would be very pleased with you and that would somehow make the a relationship uh right um between you individually you collectively you know that these sort of things um were uh common in terms of ancient religion um generally and and jews were uh, um thought in that way too um However, by Second Temple times, you get much more nuancing, and you certainly see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you see it in other texts as well. That um, that the sort of idea that that surely can't be all that's needed, you know. Um, and it was much more about um, doing the right thing. It's about your heart, and it's about prayer. Um, and in fact, we see it in Isaiah, and I, I. Myself, in, in terms of the book, on when I wrote jo, uh, the Immersor on John the Baptist, I realised that the key to John the Baptist is really in um, the prophet Isaiah. If if you read the prophet Isaiah and also the other prophets too, they are saying, "Look, Israel, <laughs> you know, if you're going to um, be right with God, um, you have to change your ways. You have to to think about what's going on in your heart and." Um, and uh, and do the right thing, and and give uh, to uh, those who have not. Look after the widow and the orphan in your midst. Um, uh, look after the poor. Uh, do do the right thing in terms of your moral life, and then things are going to be right with you, with God. Um, it's not about anything else and it's not like they were saying so give away the whole temple ritual sacrificial system that was still a really important part of what um, was going on for Israel as a nation but in terms of morality in terms of ethics uh, atonement is is uh, is about moral action hmm. I think that's really important because people think that you know as soon as you start talking about it's in the heart, it's you know how you how it, it's how you behave that you're automatically sort of saying the temple doesn't matter anymore. But I think it's it's both of those things, isn't it? But I, I want to get on to the really important <laughs> stuff, like what was he wearing? <laughs> because the the really bizarre thing about John the Baptist is that you know we get we get this this very detailed account of what he's wearing, and yet we're not told what anybody else in the tradition is wearing. So <laughs> what's going on there, Joan? He was wearing camel hair, and it's not said it, you know it's not said a cloak of camel hair. Um, it's not a skin. Um, he's just wearing camel hair. So, so how do you wear camel hair? Is a big question. <laughs> Crochet. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, and when I explored it, it was, it, it seems to have been something that was used for sacking. Um, so goat hair and camel hair. There are different grades of camel hair. I can tell you this, that there is a fine camel hair that is used even for rugs and, you know, the special things. Um, but then there is this rough camel hair, which is the usual camel hair. Um, and, uh, it was shed by camels. Camels are shedders. And if you've been around in the Middle East, you sometimes see very patchy camels with great, you know, bald areas where their, their, their hair is shed and then it actually regrows. Um, and so 
it, camel hair is something that's found. I think this goes uh, uh, together with an idea that John the Baptist was showing people that he could live in the wild. He he was someone who who just completely trusted in God to provide from nature, and the, and there was that idea, and it goes into. Um, the sort of thing that Jesus himself says, which is, you know, behold the, the lilies of the field, they, they don't, uh, weave, they don't spin, they, you know, they, um, the, the, the birds of the, the air don't need to gather together a whole lot of food. Um, God feeds them. This idea that if you trust God, you also trust in the natural environment to provide for you, which is an extraordinary, Thing God and nature are very very closely aligned in in the teaching of John the Baptist and Jesus. So um, so John going out into the wilderness into nature away from cultivation away from the city away from towns and villages is then just wearing what he finds, um, and and it parallels what Josephus. Uh, First century Jewish historian Josephus says about a guy called Banus, um, who he follows out in the wilderness, and he says that Banus is dressed in what trees provided, you know, which means a whole bunch of leaves, presumably. Fig leaves. <laughs> yeah, so, so again, this, you know, extraordinary clothing of, of, uh, you know, naturally provided clothing. If, if it is sackcloth, I think it could have been the sort of sacking that was just left behind from camel caravans, um, that would all, you know, sacks, bunches of, of sacks off ca uh, camels would have just fallen from time to time, you know. And, and if it was sackos sack, um, then that has a resonance in terms of, um, if you're if you're dressed in sackcloth, that means that you are mourning, that you you are particularly repentant. So that could also have been something that John was doing in order to signal the need for repentance. And is there a connection with Elijah here? That's that's often sort of brought into. I mean, yeah. I know it's made by at least some of the texts, but. Is it also there in his clothing? Yeah, I th it probably is. There's a, with the skin tie around his waist, that's particularly Elijah in um, the description of Elijah. He has that too. So th th there's a whole sort of resonance between John the Baptist and Elijah, and and the the Gospels deal with that in different ways. And and there was clearly a question about. Whether or not John was Elijah, and uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's not it's not clear. Uh, the the Gospels don't necessarily um, sing from the same song sheet about that. Uh, Jesus certainly says he he was Elijah. Mm -hmm. well, we might come back to that, but just before I let uh, Dave get back in again, I just want to ask about the locusts. <laughs> you see, I've got all the very important things here. The locusts and honey, you have to those two things together. Yeah. What, I mean, it, it, is, is this really locusts? I mean, it, it's, it's, yes. it's the insect, and, and what is he doing with them? Well, um, 
Funnily enough, when I was in Thailand um, many years ago, I went to the market in Thailand and there were these huge baskets of roasted locusts. And I thought, oh, right. No, not for me today. Thank you very much. Um, I should have tried one just in the interest of um, following John the Baptist. But um, yes, so locusts (laughs) could be eaten and are eaten in many parts of of the world. Grasshopper locusts, uh, you know, that family of insects um, were consumed and um, it was not an impure food to consume. Um, And again, I think it is uh, this idea of of eating what nature provides. And it was just an example of just how weird John the Baptist would go, um, (laughs) that he would just eat locusts. Presumably he ate berries, <laughs> you know, whatever nature provided in the wilderness. And wild honey, he's also described as eating, which uh, again was the weird bit, um, because we might think, oh, nice honey, but wild honey, <laughs> you had to be particularly trusting of God in order to consume wild honey because it depended on what the bees were eating. And there are, um, indications that wild honey could be poisonous or it could give you hmm. all sorts of tummy upsets um, because the, the bees could eat things that weren't so good. So so honey manufacture requires keep <laughs> some control over what your bees are eating. Uh, wild honey is a, a riskier thing. And there's also a question of whether or not it was honey at all. It could have been something um, coming off a tree, some kind of sap off a tree. I don't know. Um, that's also been mooted. Sounding less nice. Yeah. This paints a really attractive picture. I'm picturing a lot of stickiness in his beard and like oh, bug yeah. parts, maybe a leg from a locust <laughs> hanging from oh. But um, Great. You, you brought up something. You, you mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. I, I wanted to ask about, um, do we think there's a connection between John the Baptist and these you know, these communities, the, the Essenes, or these communities where the, the Dead Sea Scrolls mm. came from. Yes, actually, recently, <clears throat> Joel Marcus has written a book uh, where he argues that there was some connection, and it, it's, a, it's a tricky one. Okay, so so people like Joel um, will say that maybe he was part of the Essene community and then he left to go off on his own, Um but that formed part of his background. The trouble is, if we're going to go down that route of what was John the Baptist before he was doing his thing by the Jordan, we could go anywhere. You know, uh, I, I could make up an entire backstory for John the Baptist on all sorts of different, you know. I'm sure you have yeah, many oh, times. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of his birth, we've got <clears throat> a... Um, an indication that he was from a priestly family. And that might very well be the case, you know, that this, this sense that he had a father, Zechariah, who was a priest who, who did his duty in the temple and his mother's name, uh, Elizabeth is also remembered that that's pretty amazing to have the memory of the, of the names of both parents. So I, I think, okay, in terms of his background, um, there's something there that is being recalled in this this nativity story that's only found in Luke, um, and I, I would want to honour that first and and foremost in terms of the the nativity story. Um, so if but if he's a priest, what we know from Josephus is that um, 
he was a priest of a priestly family and he had to go through all the legal schools of Judaism, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes, as part of his priestly education. Of course, he was a very upper-class, wealthy priest in Jerusalem, and we don't know John's um, standing in terms of uh, wealth. But but I would imagine that uh, a good priest of a priestly family would want to know the different interpretations of the different legal schools as part of what they were doing. So I, w- I don't rule out that John the Baptist had some education in terms of the, the ways that the Bible was interpreted by Essenes, uh, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, um, and uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. But to say he was an Essene, that he joined up with them, um, seems to be a a tremendously large step to make on the basis of absolutely nothing. Yeah. Well, I, I, does, does John the Baptist stand out or was he, do we think he was part of a larger movement of this sort of a messianic movement at the time? Like, would he have been maybe one of several figures who were talking about sort of the, the end and, and a figure coming to, to save them or, or judge them or whatever it was? There doesn't seem to be anyone else around at that time that was um, responsible for a, a large movement of people. And it was because John was attracting enormous crowds, according to Josephus, who writes about John, that um, that really was his downfall when it came to Herod Antipas, because according to Josephus, Herod Antipas looked at all the crowds coming to him and was fearful that um, there could be some sort of stasis in Greek, um, which means revolt, you know, that, um, and a a, a prophetic, uh, extraordinarily charismatic um, prophet, you know, this man who was speaking the words of Isaiah and seemed to be enacting a mixture of Elijah and Isaiah. Oh my goodness. Mm. Um, exciting <laughs> people's uh, th- to think that something was going to change, that God was going to act in, in history, that there could be an overthrow of Roman rule and her- the Herodian dynasty who were the Roman client kings, um, client, client rulers. So I, yeah. So you can imagine Herod Antipas and his palace having many conversations with his advisors, feeling very worried about what was going on, just in terms of the the large group of people, because he knew what had happened at the death of his father with his brother Archelaus, um, not being able to control these revolutionary movements in the generation Mm. before. That was something that would have been in the back of his mind. He had to stamp it out very, very quickly. So you've got... You've got you've got John the Baptist, sort of late twenties or so, um, and then Jesus, maybe early thirties, something like that. I get the impression from from Josephus, who, who who gives a lot of space to John the Baptist, but but curiously hardly mentions Jesus. I mean, even even the mention he has is is a bit disputed. Um, you get the impression that. John is really the big deal, and mm. Jesus is much more of a kind of a smaller thing. Would you say that's 
That's sort of the, yeah. uh, uh, how the evidence seems to suggest it. Mm. it you're right in terms of the issue of what Joseph, uh, Josephus writes about Jesus. I don't think we know exactly what he wrote about Jesus because it's been edited. And um, whereas John the Baptist seems to have been left untampered with, um, whether or not it, it it could be that there was an original paragraph of I'm sort of going the way of a bit Graham Stanton's line that there was a an original paragraph on Jesus and Josephus that would have said that he was uh, you know a very important figure but just not the Messiah as we have in the the altered text that he was called the Messiah so that would that would actually have made Jesus quite an important figure in his. Um, in his narrative, but uh, but certainly he 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 makes John the Baptist into something extraordinarily important, and um, he says that he was a good man, um, that it wasn't he wasn't a revolutionary. Josephus distinguishes him from the 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 terrible revolutionaries who he has no time for at all, and he just leads the people astray, and you know how awful all these revolutionaries are, you know, Thudas or. Or, or the Egyptian and, and others. But John the Baptist, the way he describes John is that he was a good man and he was calling people uh, to uh, repentance um, and to immerse. He uses this idea that it was about a ritual immersion and it wasn't just for washing away sins. It was actually, you know, calling the people to a different moral life. Um, and and that Herod Antipas, he, he, he gives a story in which Herod Antipas is the, the baddie. Um, and Herod Antipas has done this really, really unwise thing. And his, his population, um, then consider something terrible that happens to Herod Antipas later. To be due to the fact that he did a very, very wrong thing in, in killing John, John the Baptist. So he's kind of reporting on a, a social, um, mood, really, that first of all, the huge numbers of people came out to John the Baptist and, and were looking for this kind of revival, this purity, this, um, this recommitment to the, to their, um, their religion, the, of the moral way, the moral path, um, and then Herod Antipas comes along, fearing this huge number of people by the Jordan, and um, and arrests John the Baptist and gets rid of him. He takes him to Machaerus and and kills him very very you know, that, and that's the end of it. Um, and then Josephus says, and that was the reason why Herod's armies were destroyed by the Nabataean king Aratus the fourth. Um, so he makes a direct, direct link between what Herod Antipas has done as this awful thing to the, you know, God then goes, Oh, I'm going to destroy your armies, Herod Antipas. <laughs> that's the end of you. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's not like, um, so Josephus is not on the side of Herod Antipas, he's on the side of John the Baptist, and that's so interesting, given how he is um, so critical of the other revolutionaries. He distinguishes him as as different. 
Mm, yeah, he is positive, isn't he? So, I mean, all the Gospels suggest that, that Jesus was attracted to John the Baptist. He was part of this movement in at least some way. He's, he's uh, baptized by him. And, and, and yet you seem to get this kind of, I don't know, attention in the Gospels. They, they sort of want to, to, to say Jesus was part of this movement. And, and it's then, I mean, it's in the baptism that he has this great vision at the beginning. And that's, you know, really significant moment, the voice of God. But at the same time, they seem like they're kind of pushing away from John the Baptist. You know, they're, um, they're very keen to say that John's gospel says, you know, he was not, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the one to come. He, he, he wasn't, um, the, the the Messiah he you know that there's this kind of pushing back against him there seems to be this tension that it sort of helps them to to link up to this movement but at the same time they're a bit nervous about being too close <laughs> is that is that a, a right reading absolutely I mean you know we know the stuff that um it's Ed Sander said it's one of the most reliable things in the whole of the study of the historical Jesus. If you can say what actually happened in terms of um, a study of the historical Jesus, that Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan as part of John's um, call to baptism was is absolutely the foundation of it all. Um, you can see the embarrassment, the classic historical Jesus criterion of embarrassment. That if you can see the, um, there's a fundamental historical truth that Jesus came to John and was baptized in the Jordan. And all of the texts are trying to make of that what they can to ensure that it's theologically correct for their own narrative. Then the likelihood is that the foundation is solid that that Jesus really was in the Jordan River with everybody else coming in and being baptized that he went to be baptized in the Jordan River by John you see this is a sort of sense of of John having some sort of action involved in in their baptism that was slightly different from um from ordinary Jewish self immersion so he was somehow a mediator of it um and and it's so fundamental because it's at that moment, according to the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus comes up out of the water, that he has this extraordinary experience, this visionary experience of the heavens rent asunder, to use old-fashioned English, uh, to, to, you know, pulled apart, and um, the dove, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove or something, he see, perceives it up, coming down upon him and a voice from heaven saying you are my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and there is this absolutely uh, phenomenal spiritual experience described and and i often think okay who told anyone about that experience <laughs> you know um did everybody see it? No, it seems to have been in the, in the in the Gospel of Mark at least something that was really personal to Jesus. So he was then saying, "This is what happened to me. This is what happened to me when I was baptized by John in the Jordan, and um, and 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 that everything began with this moment for me. This is where everything began, and we do get that sense." Um, that this was the defining beginning of his mission, the defining sense of his own identity and reality. 
in terms of who he was. Well, one thing that always fascinates me, Joan, is um, who is John the Baptist predicting? Mm. I mean, you know, Christians always assume that he's pointing to to, to Jesus, but you know, is there any evidence other than the New Testament? I mean, there's nothing in Josephus. Why? It, it seems to me you could just think that uh, John the Baptist is saying God is going to mm-hmm. come and God is going to sort of destroy the world or, you know, it's going to be the end of the world and and, and judgment. Mm-hmm. And how, how firm is that idea that, um, that John was actually um, pointing to Jesus? Th- there were many concepts of Messiah, and also heavenly figures in Second Temple Judaism. So uh, Helen's question is really important because the when you're talking about a coming figure, um, one who is coming, um, it could actually mean Elijah, uh, because one coming can have a, a a connection with the prophet Elijah, just as a, a term. Um, but it could also mean one of these heavenly figures and which, which one, <laughs> you know, and, and can we mash them together and consider the son of man to be Messiah, which is what we have done in Christianity. Uh, the son, the heavenly son of man is also the, the Messiah. Um, or do we, we pull them apart because, um, some people thought of a more kind of warrior like kingly human Messiah. Um, and we have that in, um, the Psalms of, uh, Solomon. Um, so, so what what kind of uh, Messiah? What kind of heavenly figure are we talking about? And and it, it could be anything. It could be the the archangel Michael. It could be the coming figure, um, uh, uh, God's representative, who is God in some way. Um, what is this figure? And I I wonder now if. Somehow, John the Baptist himself might have made it a little vague, um, so that it was up to, given there were so many different ideas, people could come away with a whole range of different interpretations of, of what he was actually predicting. But what he was predicting was a fundamental change in terms of the way the world was ordered, the way Israel would be. Um, and that gave an urgency to his call. And that's what made people want to go out right then and then. It was like, don't mess around. You know, you don't know when things are, are going to happen, but, but already the axe is laid to the root of the trees, you know, and, um, and anyone who is, um, who's not really committed to a life of righteousness, um, is going to be burnt up. Like, Chaff, you know, it's it's uh, it's bad news for you. Um, <laughs> That's going to be bad. <laughs> you're, you're you're going to be obliterated. Um, it's not punishment. It's just obliteration. You're, it's life or death. The the way of life and the way of death. To use Qumran language, you know, the the way of truth, the way of falsehood. It's it's very polarizing. So you have to choose right here, right now. You commit yourself because things are uh, uh, just around the corner. The end is nigh. You know, the end of the, the of the present world order is nigh, and um, and God is going to, in some way, act through an agent in in history. But who that agent is, I think, is, has actually been left open by John, purposely. Hmm. Well, yeah. Let's let's not skip over the ending because things get 
kind of grisly and, and gruesome and colorful at the end, um, at least of the gospel accounts. I, I think it was interesting that you mentioned Josephus sort of had a different explanation for why why John was killed. But um, in the gospel, we have this kind of twisted tale involving a brother's wife. And then, you know, we end up with John's head on a platter. Mm-hmm. Is there any reason to believe that this is somehow why he was killed like these in these kind of palace intrigue court stories like is there any other reference to that or is that just in the new testament um the, i i think there could be some truth in what uh what's well, gospel of mark that tells the full story um and and uh and what josephus says we we might be able to weave a, a few things together there they're not necessarily mutually exclusive versions right. of of what what took place um the, the the fact that josephus mentions macarius is a bit strange because the way gospel of mark tells it it's a birthday party and you would expect it to be in galilee rather than in um herod's palace and macarius but hey you know that these things can slightly modify with the the telling um but but john may very well have criticized Herod Antipas. And um, Luke, in fact, talks about him criticizing Herod Antipas, not only for his marriage with Herodias, but also for all the other bad things that he had done. Mm. So for all we know, John might have gone on a Herod Antipas is a problem uh, lecture, (laughs) you know, Mm. to a sermon to his gathered throng saying, well, who's going to be burnt up as chaff? Well, let's look at this guy here up in the palace, not very far away mm. in Macarius. Um, and, and, and he, he, any criticism of a ruler in the Roman period was likely to get you in, um, very, very deep trouble. You would okay. be considered, um, guilty of treason. Uh, a Roman, any, any criticism of, of the emperor, of course, the Roman emperor that you were doomed. Um, any uh, criticism of a Roman, um, administrator or, uh, or client king, uh, tetrarch like Herod Antipas was liable to be considered very heinous anti-Roman, uh, stuff that you, so, um, so to criticize Herod Antipas for his actions in terms of marrying his niece, his divorced niece, um, was part of a, 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 he would no lot, he would not be considered the righteous. And therefore he would be categorized with all of those who would be, uh, swept away in the new world, uh, that God was creating. So, um, that would make Herod Antipas very, very angry, and he would mm. want to get rid of him, and Herodias too. Um, so he was in trouble the moment he said a word against Herod Antipas. Mm. I think it's interesting, though, that the Gospels, at least in a couple of them, try to distance Herod from, you know, he said he didn't want to do it, but he was sort of forced into it by this trick about the daughter. So they seem to want to forgive Herod, in a sense, for his death. I don't know. yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a, f- an interesting one, but there is a trope, um, a kind of way of talking about, um, bad kings that relies on 
um, the idea of there being conniving women. <laughs> mm. And it actually um, it reflects very badly on a male ruler if he listens mm. to what his conniving wife has said. And uh, so, it, so it shows the weakness of Herod Antipas oh, that okay. even though he thought probably uh, John the Baptist was an interesting and quite a good guy. Um, he still ends up beheading him because of his conniving wife. Well, you know, that this is sort of, oh, my goodness, how bad is that? You know, rather mm-hmm. than just being evil and strong and wanting to get rid of him, he's mm-hmm. he's that weak and pathetic. So I think that he, he doesn't do well in, in that story. And he's a little bit like Pontius Pilate at the end, oh. isn't he? You know, Pontius Pilate again is a little bit. Mm, I'm not sure about this, and 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 there, the ones sort of really going strong are are the Jewish authorities who say, you know, it, it's he's got to go, crucify him. I mean, it's all the people say crucify him. So you've got this kind of trade off between the one who doesn't really want to do it and the one who's pushing for it in in both of those stories so mm. the, you know there's maybe a little bit of artistic license there yeah. in the telling. showing weak leaders uh, a weak man is worse than a strong man usually mm. well terrific look uh we could talk about john the baptist for another <laughs> three hours i think we'll lose probably some audience members so we'll uh we should probably wrap it up um <laughs> Thank you so much, Joan, for for walking us through this. And we certainly hope to have you back on some other topics. But thank you for being our first guest. It's been a delight. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for talking about all of these things and and asking such astute questions. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Biblical Time Machine. We will see you guys next time. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Joan. And uh, bye-bye.